jingle, 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 jingle. <laughs> hey folks, welcome to a brand new episode of Fanbyte News. I am your host, John Warren. We have a really, really, really great show. Uh, listen, I say that every week, but this week it is especially true. Uh, I'm going to run down my best of the year, my top 10 goatee list. That's going to be at the end of the show. Before that, I sat down with Imran Khan, the incomparable Imran Khan. Talked about everything from his big surprises of the year to the journalistic reason why we should have embargoes and much more. It's a really enlightening conversation. I hope you enjoy it a lot. First, before we do all of that, let's do some news, shall we? I have to admit, there's not a ton of news this week. It, that shouldn't shock anyone. It's the last two weeks of the year. Folks are turtling up. And, and honestly, most of the news is cyberpunk related. And my conversation with Imran Khan, which comes up right after this section, uh, touches on a lot of that. So I want to do a quick whirlwind of small stories that popped up this week that might uh, be of interest to you. Uh, if you have a PlayStation 5, uh, you might know or have experienced uh, that when you go to play a game that both exists on PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5, it wasn't always that clear which uh, version of the game you're about to download or fire up. Um, Xbox, for its part, has something called Smart Delivery, which is basically a way that they are optimizing uh, the way that you play games on Xbox Series X. They have one version, basically one skew, in whichever console you're playing on, they they know which which version of the game to run. So that's a really, really smart, as the name implies, way of handling things. And PlayStation does not do that. Instead, they basically just kind of let you guess. There's a small icon uh, at the bottom left of every game tile that says if it's a PlayStation 4 or PlayStation 5 game. But that's not super obvious, and the storefronts where you're downloading these things will allow you to grab the last-gen version onto your next-gen console, so that's not super helpful. Uh, they did just add the, abil- uh, the, the feature of uh, basically asking you, hey, you're about to fire up a PlayStation 4 version of a game that has a PlayStation 5 uh, version uh, available to you. And it's going to ask you that, and then you can select, oh, I meant to do that, or no, go grab the next-gen version. That's their solution for this. Uh, There's no word yet if they're going to basically switch to something that is more like uh, the Xbox Smart Delivery, but um, I I would suggest that maybe it would be in their best interest to come up with something that's not this. One of the major stories from 2020 is Yakuza Like a Dragon, and not only that it changes the format of the game from a action RPG to a turn-based RPG a la Dragon Quest, uh, but also the series has removed protagonist Kazuma Kiryu, for good reason, I I might add, from the game and replaced him with new protagonist Ichiban Kasuga, Uh, and that has been a controversial decision, although... Uh, the new protagonist is pretty well liked and a lot of questions were floating around, uh, especially within the staff of fanby.com. We've discussed it at length and on 99 potions, whether or not Ichiban would be the new protagonist for other Yakuza games going forward, or if this would be a standalone, we appear to now have our answer. Kazuhiro Nakaya, who is the voice actor for Ichiban, 
uh, spoke to Famitsu, uh, the famous Japanese games magazine, uh, who indicates that he will indeed be back to voice Ichiban. According to Nakaya, Yakuza creator Toshihiro Nagoshi told him near the beginning of development, Nakaya, you're going to help me make my living for the next 10 years. Adding that also, uh, Nagoshi hopes that Kiryu and Ichiban Kasuga will stand side by side in a game in the future. So that leaves the door open for two things. One, it leaves the door open for uh, Ichiban becoming a multi-game protagonist. In addition to the fact that Kazuma Kiryu might be back, which was unclear after the end of Yakuza 6. So regardless of if you uh, your, uh, your loyalties lie with Kiryu or Ichiban, uh, it sounds like you might have uh, opportunities for both in the future. And finally, by the time you're listening to this, uh, if it's Christmas Day, then Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which is both one of the best animated films of all time and also by far the best Spider-Man film of all time, uh, will leave Netflix. It's been on Netflix for a little while. It's been the best place to grab it, in my opinion. Uh, But don't fret. Don't fret. It is available in a couple other places. Uh, You can grab it uh, on iTunes, Amazon Video, and Vudu. Keep in mind that, hey, even though you're buying this, it's still a digital copy and these retailers might be able to take them away from you. That is rare. Uh, I personally own a copy of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse on Blu-ray. I own one on Amazon Video. uh, And I watched it a couple times on Netflix. So believe me, there are a few options that you have uh, and you should definitely invest in one of them because, again, can't stress this enough, best animated film of all time. Hey, it's the second to last week of 2020, and God, I cannot wait to see it go. Uh, but we, we've we seen a lot of stories. We've seen a lot of great games. We've seen a lot of interesting developments in the realm of game development. And here to discuss with me some of those things, some spicy things even maybe, is uh, our a trusted freelancer, friend of the brand, and a co-host over at Kind of Funny, Imran Khan. Hello. Hello. I'm glad to be on here. Yeah. Uh, same. Uh, we've we've crossed paths in uh, DMs and and edits for fun pieces about zoology and <laughs> Animal Crossing, and this is really our first uh, real conversation. So I'm very excited to get to talk to you. I you know a, a story is I pitched that zoology piece to like. Two other places first. They're like, no, this doesn't seem like our kind of thing. And then after <laughs> after Fanbyte ran it, they're like, oh, we made a mistake. We yeah. shouldn't have run this. Yeah. Yeah. See, that's to me, I think that's going to be our legacy. Even if we like, you know, I don't know, totally lose our funding and close our doors in January or something. People will be like, oh, yeah, we started we started greenlighting really weird stuff because we saw it on Fanbyte. I mean, I think that is our legacy. Uh, Julia Alexander over at The Verge says she got back into anime because of us uh, last week. So I'm oh. like, is that I'm supposed like, to be a compliment or? No, no, no. It wasn't. Oh, okay. She was like, she was mad. She was like, She's like pretty shaking mad. Shaking her fist in anger, like I can't believe what yeah, you've done to I me. Can't believe y'all got me back into this thing. I thought I had kind of left. So, um, yeah, that's kind of our legacy. It seems like. Um, Hey, listen, I'm not going to ask something so trite as what your goatee is, but a lot of things kind of I, – I, I posted my list last night uh, over at fanbyte.com, uh, and 
I I was kind of reviewing it again. I was like, oh, there's some surprises on here. Like I I liked a lot of stuff that I didn't think I would have liked. Uh, what what were some of your favorite like surprises of the year? So I'll preface this by saying I'm very mad at Chris Plant for already talking about this game because I thought I was going to be the only one. I thought it would literally be me like yelling about, hey, no one's playing 13 Sentinels, I guess, Rim, except for me. But no, he had to write a full story that convinced a bunch of people to play it. But yeah, 13 Sentinels, I guess, Rim, surprisingly good. Like, I don't know what your familiarity with Vanillaware games is. Oh, I, I've, I've played Odin Sphere, uh, and and I really, really loved it. I have not really, I've, I've not really played a ton of their other stuff, but like, uh, 13 Sentinels looks pretty interesting. So yeah. I don't know. I may check it out. My my personal experience with them has always been, oh, this game looks really good, but then there's right. just not enough to it. Like, yeah, it's yeah. so repetitive in certain places or like just doesn't quite close the loop well enough. Yeah. 13 Sentinels does an interesting thing of just going, nah, screw the loop. Like it is, <laughs> it is at its best. It is a visual novel. And I think mm. that's where it belongs. It actually shows like it is a really good time travel story that personifies all its characters extremely well. There's a there's a strategy RTS turn-based battle thing also there, which is, you know, it's fine. It is the equivalent of like building a bunch of Gundam models and like fighting them with each other. But <laughs> it's not the main draw. The main draw is I like this main story so much. And they do a thing where they Basically, at, at, after the tutorial, they let you say, like, hey, you can just do the main story up until a certain point and don't even have to worry about the battles. You, If you do that, you'd have to worry the battles at, yeah, at some point and then, like, do all of them at once to just finish the game. But they know what they're making. They know yeah. that the turn-based battle system is not the draw. It's fine. It is completely, you know, perfunctory. But it is not, you know, it is not what I come to that game for. When I boot it up, I'm looking for more about these characters, more about this mystery. Yeah. Like that game, the premise twist in the prologue is the kind of thing most games would save for like their end game <laughs> twist. <laughs> but I love that confidence though. Like, I think that's really cool. I think that's, that looks like it seems like a developer that's, um, you know, really confident in its game right now, which is, uh, which is cool because I think I agree with you. I don't think that there, when, when I've played Vanillaware games in the past or kind of like sniffed around them to see if I would like them, that nothing seemed uh, uh, deep enough to grab me, right? But every single time I read like a Chris Plant article or I talk to our managing editor, Steven Strom, who's played it, um, the ideas in this game are so bonkers. I'm like, okay, well... I missed this in 2020, but this is clearly something I need to pick up uh, in January. Um, yeah, it's. I think that's going to be the game that everyone in 2021 is like, why didn't anyone talk about this? It's like, people <laughs> did. It just it got buried under a landslide of other games and releases. And honestly, like this, it doesn't feel like the year where you want to read about or play a game about a bunch of teenagers trying to stri or stop the apocalypse. <laughs> But it works out. It like it, it. We're talking about anime. It is a very anime story. But it's like yeah. it's one of those anime stories you talk about twenty years later. Like, why isn't anyone still talking about Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood? And the answer is because it's a decade and a half old. But it's like this is what this game is going to be. Is why isn't anyone talking about Thirteen Sentinels? I guess Rim. And because nobody like one, nobody played it, and two, it's old. But it'll it'll invest real estate in your head for a long time. Do you think it's just weird? It's too weird to. 
concisely described so that's why nobody kind of picked up on it because the the folks that have played it it seems like they really really love it so the other part of vanillaware bullshit is the <laughs> fact that george kamitani great artist apparently a really great writer kind of can't get over like he really sexuality is a bit too much in those games it's, like it's, I, it's it's a it's a tricky balance and i don't think they ever really strike it yeah right like <laughs> even even when you get past the stuff in dragon's crown of like hey this this mage is like weirdly hourglass shaped in a way that has no room for her organs or things like that like I, fine, fantasy design, sure. But then you get to the part where, like, okay, this elf is, or this woman in this art is splayed out, and you can like touch her nipples, and like ah. she'll react, and like that's the kind of thing that like that kind of takes me off vanillaware stuff. Yeah. So in the first like ten seconds of Igis Rim, a teenage girl gets into a mech and's like, "Why are my clothes gone?" And that's a <laughs> for me a very good question that is not really central to the mystery, but it's like, okay, I can't play this game in the room with other people, and. <laughs> There is an answer, and the answer is interesting, but it's like, okay, her clothes are gone, but also she is, her art is like literally her, you know, splayed out. Like, it is, yeah. it's a lot like the anime Darling in the Franks of, yeah, this is about sexuality, and I think that's interesting, but maybe it didn't need to be about sexuality quite in this way. Sure. Yeah. Then that, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, you just said I can't play this around other people. That reminded me of when I played uh, – spoilers for Xenosaga Episode 3. Uh, but I remember playing that game and the reveal of one character being Jesus and the robot with the big boobs is Mary Magdalene. And my mom walked in as that was kind of being revealed, this like very waspy Christian lady in her 50s. And uh, I was just like, well – I can't play this anymore at home. So um, that reminded me of that for some reason. Uh, I remember being a kid and like telling my mom about Final Fantasy X because it's like, oh, this game actually has a really interesting <laughs> story. Like it's very cool. And, you know, she's my mom. She's, she happily nodded and that's it. And for whatever reason, I maybe this is just a thing I've never grown out of. I wanted to prove to her video games are like, you know, <laughs> they have good stories. They are valid like pieces of entertainment. And I bought Final Fantasy X too, thinking more or less the same tone, right? It's a sequel. So I like hooked the PS2 up to the living room TV and like put the disc in. It was like, oh yeah, no, this is going to be big. Like this character was like a dream that he died. So this game is about the sequel. And you know, then the concert scene started. She's like, oh, Okay, this is what you like. This is the kind of thing video games are now. Like, kind of, but no, this is what I, isn't what I thought it was going to be. That game still was very cool, but maybe not the best introduction when you're trying to make the case that video games are Coppola esque uh, stories yeah, right. that yeah. you can that anyone can enjoy. No, listen, mom. Like, she's trying to basically rescue her boyfriend who's like dead, but like, it's listen, it's confusing, but. Uh, okay, well, okay, I guess I power her up by dressing her up in different... Okay, this is not... Okay, I'm not... The hot pants are story appropriate, let, yeah. <laughs> let me assure you. Yeah, man, what a game that was. It was uh, great. Yeah, it's a good game. Um, and Anything else that was kind of on your radar this year that uh, you, you didn't expect to kind of uh, be as good as it was? Or, or, hey, or vice versa. So... I well okay if we're talking vice versa then Cyberpunk I thought was going to be one of the best games I like I've played and I ended up just uninstalling it today cuz I'm it's both bad. not that interested it like there's there's a lot of people who say this game would be great if not for the bugs and I'm, I don't, know don't think that. that's true I don't know <laughs> about that you know what let's let's take that exit I I want to talk about that because that's one of those things that 
has really frustrated me with a lot of the discourse is it is very bug focused. And I'm like, uh, Steven Strom and Nikki Grayson, uh, two, two of my coworkers and I, we just talked about this game for two hours on a podcast. And yeah, the bugs are funny, but this game is is empty and the AI is bad. Most of the things that people are assigning uh, as problems to bugs are missing the fact that a lot of these decisions are completely deliberate. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I all of my misgivings about CD Projekt Red aside in terms of the roll-up of this game, I, I agree with you. I fully expected this to be one of those games that scratch the same itch that like a fallout new vegas would scratch for me or something like that and it just didn't do any of that for me i was going in with the i'll say bare minimum expectations but the expectations i had were hey the witcher 3 is one of my favorite games of the generation yeah this is from the people who made the witcher 3 it should at least be that good and when i say bare minimum i think like that's that's the kind of trap you make for yourself when you make a great game is the next <laughs> yeah. game should at least reach for those same kind of stars. But it doesn't. It like the actual game design, if you stay on the main path, there's some really good stories in there. And like right. there's a couple of side quests that are interesting. But like one of the things I always think about is that when, when I first started that game, the lady cop calls you and she's <laughs> like, hey, there's like I don't think cyberpsychosis is you know a fatal thing. You try and knock these people out, and the only thing I think of is did I miss a cutscene? Who oh, is right. this? Like is this? why is she telling me this thing? And I'm trying to imagine like if you were the, playing The Witcher Three and like you started that game literally at the beginning of the game, and someone like I don't know says through a cannon a string to Geralt, hey, I'm I'm someone from another town. I'm the sheriff there. Can you please like I don't know. <laughs> be nice to Griffins or whatever. Like that wouldn't make sense. And it would be so weird and it would take me out of that game a lot. And like, I understand with cyberpunk, you have more technology. Thus it is like, you do have the ability to, you know, get a cold call, but it doesn't from a narrative perspective, it doesn't make a lot of sense in how it's supposed to endear me or attach me to this thing. And I just kind of ignored that because I don't know who this person is or why I should help them. And that's kind of like cyberpunk in a nutshell is, I'm, I feel, I don't feel like a fish out of water in this world. I feel like I was quantum leaped into this world and other characters know everything already about it. And I'm not getting the explanation or narrative hooks I need to actually tie me to it. You didn't get the memo. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, you as a player, it it is so bizarre. And we, we mentioned this uh, in that, in that episode where, that that beginning montage where you the main character V, uh, you're basically you leave whatever starting, uh, path uh, that you that you choose, which is ultimately basically meaningless no matter what you do, um, and then you you just see like a forty five second montage of you basically living the life that got you to this point in this game. And it just feels like that they just cut all that out. I mean, doesn't it to you that like that was maybe that was maybe part of this is figuring is is really developing that sense of community with this place. But they just they explicitly skip it, which which leaves you in the cold and you never really get back in. Um, It's bizarre. It's a weird choice. It feels like they saw a Robert Rodriguez movie and they were like, this is it. This is the (laughs) the. 
uh, zenith of narrative storytelling. It's like, no, that works for movies because movies are two, hour lo- two hours long. You can afford to give me a little bit more than this. I don't need to, like... At, like, at some point, cyberpunk becomes a world of assumptions. Right. Of I, I recognize this works that way because people are telling me it works that way. And then I don't, I don't really have the grasp or, like, the full... Like, you could say Witcher 3, or the Witcher games in general, are taken off a, like, book series, and thus, that's, like, they're similar in that way. But I don't think it actually works as well. I think, like, The Bloody Baron wasn't from the books. The Bloody Baron was something CD Projekt wrote. And there's nothing like that in cyberpunk to just, you know, attach me to a human story in that world. And I think one of the the other really strange things is, you know, Geralt is a, a, a by the time Witcher Three rolls around, an established character who's made uh, clear choices in the world. Obviously, like some of your choices in previous games, you know, matter uh, to an extent uh, to his characterization. But like, Geralt feels like a character that you can still that that is still malleable in some way mm-hmm. that can change his stars that can turn over a new leaf that can decide to, you know, uh, devote himself to Yennefer or like to, to be a different person than his reputation has led him uh, to be at in that moment. And that feels very powerful to take this character who is established, but you can kind of you know, choose to be kinder. You can choose to not uh, grift everyone for money. Like when you can do your Witcher stuff, um, these are choices you make. And in cyberpunk as a blank template, I, it feels like you have less of that choice, yeah. which is so strange to me. It is. It's interesting. Cause like, so they showed an E3 demo a couple of years ago. I remember being in the theater for that. And yeah. they like, they showed basically one of the beginning quests of, Hey, you're going to, you need to get this item from the scavengers. Like how you do it. Like depends greatly on, you know, your choices. So, right. In the demo, they didn't scan the credit chip, and then they like found out, oh, it was a trap, and now the scavengers are attacking us. I was not like super into the like gameplay of Cyberpunk at that point, but I figured, sure. okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make all the opposite decisions. I will. I don't want to fight my way out of this because I'm not spec for that. I spec for stealth, and I think stealth is bad in this game. So mm-hmm. I'm going to make decisions of I scan this chip beforehand. I I was clear with them and told them, hey. Here's the money, but they, you know, they put a virus on this. So instead of them attacking me, a different faction attacked me, and it was the exact same like scenario. And it's like <laughs> at some, and this is, it's not quite this because Witcher Three only came out five years ago, but there is a a feeling I get with that game of. No, we're not going to let you miss the set piece because we put a lot of money and time into it. Mm. And once you make a game based around choices that's like that, then the choices all feel illusory. And Cyberpunk yeah. should have been like, again, I, I said this doesn't feel like the game came for the people who made Witcher 3. It also doesn't feel like a game for the people who made Witcher 2, where you could make <laughs> a choice and just not see half, another half of the game. Like, there are literally just separate paths of the game that have entirely exclusionary content. And I, I can't imagine how much work that would be for Cyberpunk, but I feel like I was led to believe it would be like that. And yeah. that it wasn't, that it was like, you're going to fight someone no matter what, so make sure you have guns coming in. That felt disappointing. Yeah, I, and, and I, I don't know how much of this is me taking my experiences with games like Deus Ex or, 
or other games and just assuming that I would be able to do these things. But I did have this this feeling going into it that I would have more of that moment to moment choice in order to, you know, say not eradicate an entire warehouse full of people like, oh, OK, I can. I can maybe use diplomacy or whatever to get out of the situation or or whatever. And most encounters really boil down to if you're if you're spec for stealth, uh, how long can you go before someone basically cheaply sees you and then you basically just have to run up to everyone and shoot them in the head, which like is not that hard to do in this game. Yeah. Uh, by the way. Um yeah, I don't, I, I don't know how much of that was sold to me by CD Projekt Red because I was in some of those E3 presentations as well, and I felt it's it's been so long, I'm, I feel crazy because I'm like, I did see this, right? I'm not crazy. that They were showing us things that indicated that these choices were part of the game, and that's been, that's been one of the weird parts about Cyberpunk is feeling like I really did see a totally different experience a couple of years ago. Yeah, it's... I'm not going to say we were, like, bamboozled. It was just, no, like... yeah. It, it's one of those things that, like, Cyberpunk has made me think about how we report on games. Because I remember coming for that demo, and I remember my boss writing about it. And he, like, he wrote a very factual thing of this happened, this happened, and, like, let right. people draw the conclusion that it was cool. But now I'm looking at, like, when I go to game demos, should I be looking out for the Barnum and Bailey act in the background? Right. And yep. it, to some extent, I feel like that's unfair. Of like, yeah, games in progress aren't done, so I can't really. I as a reporter, I I have that like mental framework that I know they're not done. I know a little bit of how this is like trying to trick me. Should I? Is it worth reporting that to people? Of yeah, this game's not done. This could be anything. Or should like the audience understand? Right. Or should the publishers get better at not market like marketing their game more truthfully and it feels like a Mexican standoff of I don't want to blame any of these people because they do have their own agendas, but I do feel feel like there were also multiple points of failure along the way. Right. It it and, and that that's a great segue because I mean I feel like a lot of what we were uh, shown for a couple of years ahead of this and also you know that the content of the embargo that was that was uh, passed down to review outlets, which we can get into in a second. Um, I feel like there was some uh, smoke and mirrors is, is I think, a, a polite but accurate way of, of saying it. And you know what? A lot of game development, to be totally frank, it is smoke and mirrors. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. A lot of things are uh, shortcuts to obfuscate these, like, little, like, problems in a game. And so it's not always this inherently bad thing of... We, we did a trick to make something play the way that we wanted it to play. But in this case, I, I do feel like um, there is this really strange uh, tension of seeing something and kind of assuming that it's too good to be true or not quite what it seems. Um, but when you report on that, that feeling... You're, you're editorializing, too. So I do feel like publishers maybe either consciously or unconsciously take advantage of this idea that, hey, if you or I go see uh, a demo and we just are, are so unbelievably skeptical about what we see, is that really reporting? Right. Because that tension is really tough to, um, I don't know, t- tough to, tough to, uh, 
I don't know. Tough, tough to really figure out in my head. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to – journalism has never been the part of the marketing arm that people seem to think it is. But sure. it is also sometimes a bit too close to the marketing arm because, like, we do have to understand that video games are messy and complicated. And until a product is being reviewed, we really can't pass judgment on a lot of these things. But right. some of it, like – I don't know. The cyberpunk they showed us in 2018, I think it was. I don't yeah. I don't think it bears a whole ton of resemblance to the final game. Like it was the same mission, it was the same story, but they the like I said it was clearly a circus act behind it. And yeah. if I had gone back like and written on Game Informer, yeah, Cyberpunk was really cool, but I it's multiple <laughs> years away at this point. I don't know is this going to be another BioShock Infinite where the demo we show we just saw has no That's resemblance amazing. to the main game. Like right. there would be a lot of people <laughs> go like why are you trashing this game that, you know, right. you don't know if it's actually going to be that thing in the end and they're right, I don't know, but if I had said that, maybe there would be people who were not as mad that it's not the same right. thing right now. Well, well, unbelievably terrible crowd reaction aside, I mean, like, doesn't it feel like maybe maybe we should err on the side of let's be skeptical and then be pleasantly surprised instead of what we got, which was two plus weeks now of how is this game so bad that has been in development for this long? Um I don't know. I don't know the answer. Um, People don't like to, to that, hear but... things are in a game are bad. Like I, right. I work for a video site that is very relentlessly positive, and like they all like fully yeah. believe that. Like they're they're positive people. They like being happy about games, and I am the like more cynical one. And I get Same. endless yeah. amounts of <laughs> from the audience about that. And like that is just. That's just the way it is, is that people in the they want to be hyped. They, hype is a good feeling for them. But it also like right. I saw a tweet that said uh, the audience you create is the audience that reacts or something like that. And that's true of cyberpunk is when you create those those feelings, that endless like level of hype and love and affection for a thing that is not actually on shelves yet, then yeah. those same people are going to take all that back and like backlash against you like from a marketing perspective the idea that your audience loves your game enough to attack journalists who criticize it is fantastic right. because mm -hmm. they they clearly are already bought in they are ready to give you the money but from the other side of that from the other part of the marketing of they have so much emotion tied into this thing it's going to be so bad if that thing doesn't deliver. And in this case, we're, right. we're witnessing one of the biggest examples of that. Like I mentioned Bioshock Infinite, but granted, Bioshock Infinite was, is mostly a good game, mostly well-liked, and a lot of people just didn't, get, didn't see those demos that the press all saw on those in the right. field days. So it wasn't quite that same effect. This one, they had the press write about it, and then they showed it, and then it like, oh, it validated what the, the praise the press was giving it. And then it was just months and months and months of waiting and heart, or, trailers and hype cycles and Night City uh, direct reports and stuff like Night that. Night City Wire, right, yeah, 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 for weeks, yeah. Like, it's, it's an entirely predictable thing, and it's one of those things of your game better deliver, because if it doesn't, then you just you open Pandora's box. Yeah. Well, we 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 know about some of the, the the strange embargo stuff. So let's talk about the embargo and let's talk about some of the discourse because I mean, God, 
I, I've, it's been a grip. Actually, that's not true. It's only been about six months <laughs> since I've seen Discourse This Poisoned. Uh, we've had two this year. Imran, we've had The Last of Us 2 and Cyberpunk, where I just, like, I, I, go, I go on Twitter every day and I see something that shocks me. Um, how did that defector piece sit with you? Uh, it sucked. It was like, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it feels like if I were to write about sports, cause I don't know enough about sports. Right. And if I were to write like, sure. Oh, these people get paid too much, blah, blah, blah. Like maybe that's, that's like a real actual complaint, but I don't know enough about it to write about it. So if I did, I would look like a clown and right. this defector piece is it's like a thought experiment and how to take a good point and bury it, but then just miles. Of and yeah. that's exactly what, like I, there, there are different layers to this of, yeah, I can see how somebody would come to that conclusion. It's right. NDAs are bad. Embargoes had their uses, but CD Projekt Red absolutely manipulated them to make a better end result for themselves. And that should be called right. out and that should be like put on them, not on like the reviewers that didn't have a choice about it. Like, and then to go out and then react to it by joking about being Gamergate is just that. That is bad. That speaks to judgment that puts the entire piece in, uh, makes that entire thing suspect. And I'm, yeah. I am shocked that someone didn't like put someone else's put a hand on someone's shoulder and go like, you probably need to log off. Like you, did, yeah. This yeah. is not just delete. This is apologize and then like disappear for a little bit so everyone can just uh, punch themselves out and be done with it. Well, and if you haven't read the piece, uh, listeners, uh, the the uh, <laughs> the headline is at least you now at least you at least now you know which video game reviewers are sellout clowns, which is obviously a great uh, great f- uh, best first foot forward. Um, but the 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 piece, more or less, uh, to paraphrase, uh, essentially puts the blame on journalists uh, who. Uh, adhere to embargoes instead of basically just denying them or rejecting them. Uh, Same with NDAs. I mean, there was a real focus on NDAs in this piece, which I think is actually less of the issue than, than the embargoes themselves. Um, I think you and I agree, Imran, that like the NDA stuff, like I have always been really, really weirded out when we get NDAs for stuff because I, NDAs are tricky anyway. Uh, NDAs are arguably unenforceable, depending on what you're at, what's actually changing hands. So, like, there's a lot of weird stuff there. But, like, make, not to put you on the spot, but, like, make a journalistic case for for adhering to embargo. So embargoes, especially review embargoes, are basically giving me enough time to review and write a game. So let's say okay. I'll, I'll pick out a random game that is, is not a real-world uh, case, but... Resident Evil 3 Remake. If they, on the 1st of March, gave everybody that game and said, okay, there's no embargo, write, review is out whenever you want, then my next 12 hours are going to be rushing through that game and then writing a hasty review and then probably not taking time to sit, like, actually think about my thoughts and analyze it and do all that stuff. Because if I don't, then GameSpot is going to beat me or, you know, whoever is going to beat me, do it. If they say, here's the game, the embargo's in two weeks. Granted, also not a lot of time. But then I have the game. I can play through it at a decent pace. I can, you know, let it gestate for a while, look over my notes, go back into the parts that I feel like maybe I didn't explore well enough or whatever, and then write my review because I know everyone is coming out at the same time. What CD Projekt Red did was an embargo in NDA. We'll use those interchangeably right now. But use that to manipulate what was go- what was being shown. They said... 
if you're going to take this review copy of this game, then you can't, you have to use our B-roll for any video footage. But it also had a thing in there saying, if you, the actual like embargo for that, for your footage, you can still record it, but it can't go, it'll go up two days before launch. That is what I imagine most journalists were thinking of. They're not going to sign an NDA that actually makes it hard to criticize the game before people have a chance to buy it. But the fact that there was that out of games, the game, you can't show like all these bugs and all that before launch. It was still CD Projekt Red saying, we think most people are going to pre-order off the reviews and not cancel when they see the bugs. But it did allow journalists to make the criticisms they wanted to make openly. And I would never sign an... I I think actually I have a a real-world example of this, and people can probably guess the game, but honestly, I'm not going to say the name. But a company had me record our video footage of a game, and then in the embargo said, you can't show the shopkeeper at any point. And I was like, the shopkeeper's (laughs) in like almost every scene we recorded. And they're like, yeah, you can't show them, you can't show them singing, whatever. And I'm like, why? And they didn't answer. And then it ended up being like this weird thing of like, I think a bunch of journalists end up complaining about it because they ended up just pushing the preview months and months and months. And I think the previews actually went up a week before the game came out, which is also not ideal. But people, like journalists do fight if they don't feel like they can do their job with an NDA. And publishers know that. So if... No, like I'm sure they would love to put a very restrictive NDA that makes their game look great, but at the end of the day, people will complain about it, and uh, that's going to look also just terrible for your game. So that's also a part of marketing you want to avoid. Yeah, the 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 cyberpunk embargo it seemed to uh, know that it was obfuscating, you know, some of the console uh, problems that were obvious and some of the the differences in performance that maybe we weren't aware of until the review uh, review copies actually went out. Another instance, though, another way that embargoes could be very strange is we saw uh, for The Last of Us Part Two this, this major mechanical narrative part of that game, which is something that was, one, completely absent from the marketing, uh, and also kind of completely discouraged for being really discussed openly in the review process, which I think actually tells people something concrete about whether they would like the game or not. When when you get an embargo like that, what kind of discussions are you having with like your editorial team or or anyone if, if you're in a position of editor again? Like what kind of conversations are you having? I think in that so less of us is a weird one because. Sony was very selective about that in a way that, like, I actually find extremely off-putting that I ended up not getting a review copy that, and granted, it wasn't a review copy by that point for, like, a month and a half because, I mean, who knows why? Maybe they were being selective. Maybe the fact that a week before I said I didn't really like Naughty Dog games actually (laughs) mattered to Sony. Who knows, honestly? It could be any number of things, but, like, when I found out... uh, I had talked to reviewers who were complaining about, I can't believe we can't talk about this thing. And mm-hmm. depending on, you know, what what your medium is, if you're like someone who's going to report about Last of Us for a month, that's actually kind of good because then you could do more podcasts about it. But if you're someone who's trying to put one review to inform people about it, I probably wouldn't be able to write that review. But if they if somebody came to me with that NDA, the first thing I would do is I would probably push back on it and I'd be like, well, yeah. wait, hold on. We can't talk about this. Is this really something like that is extremely important? You you don't you know, that you need to have out of here. And Sony would probably say yes. 
at that point, it does become a, a somewhat ethical discussion of, do you think we can review this game without talking about this? And if if I were editor-in-chief and if a reviewer told me, no, I can't, and if everyone at my outlet told me, no, I can't do this, then I'd just be like, okay, then we'll wait. It sucks for us. It sucks for traffic. But honestly, and here's a dirty secret nobody really gets, and everyone, like, when they yeah. try to... Uh, when people try to push that idea that like, oh, this site is just giving a negative read for clicks, reviews don't do that well. Reviews are not right. traffic drivers. Like the post game stuff and like SEO stuff and guides, those are traffic drivers. Reviews are yes, not. Yeah. And right. so like if if you miss the last of us release date, it sucks for your site's credibility. But in terms of people actually clicking onto the site, they usually just like go to recent era or see like at Nibel, like tweet everyone's scores or whatever, and that's it. They don't actually read the review unless it's already like confirming something they are they already believe. So, I think we're we're actually reaching the point where companies are going to get like if they feel like they have the game where you would need to review it to actually you know to you know stay credible, they're going to push that sort sort of thing. But we're also getting to the point where I don't think everyone needs to say yes, like. I, th- yeah. I imagine GameSpot and IGN and all that have to because it does directly affect their credibility. But I, if I'm running a smaller site, I personally would say, all right, cool. I'll buy a copy at Best Buy when it comes out and we'll do our own review for it. Do you, do you think like – because I, I do feel like – and I, I I don't talk that much about it with other you know editors or former editors or like you know really major – uh, heads of sites. Um, I, I don't have a lot of these conversations outside of, of what Fanbyte does, but like I do get the sense, at least from my history in this industry, that some outlets are vying to be quote publisher friendly. And that's something that like, you know, I, I really notice, I really harp on. I feel like in that marketing sales pipeline of like, you know, getting a takeover for your site for two weeks at the height of uh, Black Friday run up, like, you know, cyberpunk getting in the door at IGN, you know, it, 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 there's a, there's a race to be publisher friendly, I feel like. And that's not the jobs of the journalists. Like the journalists are, they, they're really not in those discussions at all, but I have to imagine, and this is what a lot of the, that defector piece missed is some of those decisions to cover this thing at all costs, no matter what the embargo is, that's coming from that direct pipeline of the CEOs, the marketing sales pipeline. They really need that coverage to go up because the the brands that are buying in to that ad space, it kind of it falls on that, or at least the impression is those things are connected. Do you do you get the sense that that's true, or am I off base there? So, in my experience, there is a big red line between uh, business and editorial. And one of the things I will I will always praise Andy McNamara for is that he he basically stood as that red line. Oh, and y'all and y'all had a wild one. I mean, you're owned by by GameStop, right. And that's a that's a really firm line you had to draw. And like, so that's impressive. There were some things of like, hey, don't advertise this PS Plus sale or what it like in the middle at the bottom of the story. <laughs> sure. And it's like those are those are things that made me grumpy and things I push back on. But you know, at the end of the day, that doesn't matter. GameStop had never like really sat in, gone and tried to kill a story. And there are stories I've made that they probably would have tried to kill. And I, I basically, they didn't get involved until, you know, they eventually did get involved. But, uh, 
I do think when a site, if a site is plastered in cyberpunk ads, the only thing that really annoys me about that is um, I don't like seeing those ads. <laughs> Beyond that, I, I, I <laughs> they're, ima- they're ugly. Yeah, I imagine true. most sites are like very good about separating those two things. When I read a Callie Plaggy review, I know she did, she was not influenced by anything. Even though GameSpot has had that history, I think she, I know that she is better off, like she's a better writer than to let that like affect her. But there are sites that, you know, do seem to be publisher friendly. They're not huge ones. They're usually not ones that have like ethics statements plastered on their walls. But that's kind of why, like the the defector piece of people should have just not agreed to the embargo. Okay. It's not that simple. Yeah. (laughs) That only works if we're all a, a wall. And we're not. Yeah. There, there are going to be people who don't agree, like who do agree to the embargo, and they're going to be the ones who are up. And then it becomes like, okay, so the people who would go out there and say this was our NDA, there are tons of bugs in our game, our game. They won't let us show like the like, footage. They didn't give us console stuff. Those people aren't the ones who have reviews out on day one. And right. the only reviews you have are the people who actually did adhere to the marketing or adhere to the publisher like requests or whatever. And it does paint a different kind of picture. At that point, it is better to write the, the dissent than it is to, uh, you know, give a, a give silence in the face of like all these people like showering it with praise. Yeah. Wow. Well, you, uh, you, you really, uh, you helped clarify a lot of my, my own, my own misgivings about this entire thing. So uh, that's, yeah, thank you. I mean, the end result is Um, there's no one answer and it's all a case by case basis and it all sucks. There's not. Yeah. It all sucks. Huh? (laughs) I mean, like I, I I do feel like the, the, the one thing I took from a lot of this discourse over the weekend and last week is, is I, I don't think the publishers are ever going to, get together and quote basically learn a lesson from this. I, I don't think they're incentivized to like, I do think something has to change in, in a direction. And I don't, I don't trust publishers to be the ones to kind of get those lessons. Right. At, um, at the end of the day, like, Hey, capitalism is an, un, are an unmoving force that is always going to mm, stand in the way mm. of like the right thing to do. And yep. Basically, we all need to figure our ways around it. Publishers do, uh, journalists do, consumers do, and it's going to be different answers for all of us. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's you know one of our biggest disappointments of the year was obviously Cyberpunk, but uh, hopefully, uh, greener pastures are ahead of us in 2021. God, that's <laughs> the famous last words. Knock on wood. Please, 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 be a better year. Um, what are you looking forward to next year in terms of game stuff? Is there anything on the horizon you're particularly excited about? So it's actually super interesting because I was looking at yesterday and compared to previous years, we have very little idea of what 2021 looks like. Like right. where we in 2020 or 2019, I knew what was coming out in 2021 aside from delays and all that. This year, everyone's been very quiet and we have new consoles out. And so that's part of the equation. And just obviously COVID is a big thing. But the, of the stuff that has been announced, like, I playing through Age of Calamity made me realize how much I love Breath of the Wild and oh, I just man. I cannot wait for Breath of the Wild 2. I don't know what that game is besides just being a single Breath of the Wild, but every day that Breath of the Wild 2 is not out is another day I feel is somewhat wasted. Yeah. Yeah, I I I was the I was the moron that actually thought that game was going to be stealth released to some extent at some point this year. Like early this year I was like I think that's going to drop late 2020. I think they've been working on it. 
I think it's going to be amazing. And then, you know, now, now I'm back to feeling like, Oh God, I actually don't know when that's coming out. And that's been stressing me out. Um, yeah, that's a big one for me. God, I hope that's next year. I really, really do. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my that's my favorite game of all time. So I just can't wait for the sequel to that. Although, you know, I also do the thing where I'm like, is it? it can it even? Can it even live up yeah. to to what I've had in my mind this entire time? But I'm I'm looking forward to, for them to try. I'm of course looking forward to the Mass Effect stuff. Like, I, listen, I'm a I've played them all, uh, and I will play them all again. Um, even though the Bioware stuff continues to be very interesting with those high level departures, uh, I'll be interested to see if they actually uh, that Kenneth Shepard, uh, one of our writers who, who also runs a Norman DFM, a really good mm-hmm. Mass Effect review podcast. Um, you know, he wondered out loud: Are they going to change something about? Are they they may they may stay they may keep everything the same, but are they going to alter something at the very end of uh, Mass Effect Three that would lead to some sort of canonical ending into whatever they're working on next uh, instead of leaving it more open to interpretation yeah. like it is now? Like um, that trailer for whatever the next Mass Effect game had, you know, broken mass relays, which I believe is only from yeah. one of the endings. So right, like. They may have just said like, okay, we've chose the canon ending. This like, is it. This is yeah. Yep. But yeah, I'm interested. Uh, let me. I want to express a little beef with Ken Shepard because. Oh okay. Oh wow. All right. Beef with Ken Shepard. Here we go. I was told recently he he once made a deal with someone that they would play Danganronpa and he would play Yakuza Zero. The other person did not play Danganronpa, so he has refused to play Yakuza Zero. No, play Yakuza Zero. Like, do not refuse yeah, to play, play that Yakuza game. Yakuza Zero. Yeah, I agree with that. Okay, well, I wasn't aware of that, Imran, so I will definitely go <laughs> and uh, listen, Kenneth. If you're listening to this right now, um, you just go ahead and play Yakuza Zero, and um, yeah, let me know how it goes. In fact, let's uh, maybe let's have a piece up uh, by what January fifteenth. Uh, <laughs> does that sound good? All right, that sounds good. Um, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for joining me, Imran. Um, I I I hope your 2020 has been. I don't know, better than average. Seems to be pretty bad across the board, but in retro- in retrospect, I'll remember the good things and hopefully not the bad ones. Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, where can folks find you online? Uh most of my I, I'm pretty much in a lot of places. So you can find yeah, you everything are. centralized on my Twitter account. It's Imran Z O M G. And I like streams, bylines, all that stuff you'll find there. Awesome. Uh, you've been so good on kind of funny. I love that you are the, the, that listen, when you showed up there, I was like, they don't do cynicism on that. They don't do that. And I'm like, ah, Imran does a little bit of that. That's good. Um, as I have a dark heart, let's be <laughs> honest. Um, uh, but no, they're, they're doing great stuff over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, really cultivating a fun and positive, uh, community that like I, I couldn't be caught dead doing. So it's work that like. I couldn't even begin to do so. It's amazing uh, what they've done, and your contributions have been great. So, Thank you. Um, awesome. Well, I hope you have a really great rest of your year, uh, as as little as it is there is left, and uh, a good twenty twenty one. And uh, hopefully, we'll have you back soon. Yeah, I hope so too. I suspect that we will be working together in some form in the new year. You know what? I suspect that too. I don't know why, but I do suspect that. Um, all right, Imran, take it easy. You too.
This week, Fanbyte staff and friends posted their games of the year over at Fanbyte.com. You can go check out everyone's list. And you can go check out mine as well. Uh, mine is up there. It was posted a few days ago. Uh, it's a really good one. I put some good words in it, but if you don't like using your peepers uh, to read stuff, which I totally get, uh, I'm going to run down that list for you right now. Uh, I had 10 games that I really loved. I had some honorable mentions. Let's go down the list. Uh, my three honorable mentions uh, start with Final Fantasy XIV. This game is... Uh, a fan by favorite. Uh, a lot of folks on staff love this game a lot. And after a few false starts and attempts at getting into this game over the past few years, this is the uh, year I finally really sunk my teeth into it. I created a character. Her name is Fedona Tep. Please don't at me. Uh, you can go check out some of the saga of Fedona Tep, my amazing Vera Mage. Uh, in some of the early episodes of 99 Potions, where we talk about this game quite a bit, uh, I talked about this game a lot with Steven and Natalie, two folks who absolutely love this game. I'm finally starting to see why folks are super into this game. I'm not even out of Realm Reborn yet, which is uh, amazing, because it's apparently the worst part of the game. So, can't wait to play more of this in 2021. Uh, I'm shocked that I love an MMO as much as I do, but it really is that good. Another game on my honorable mentions is Paper Mario The Origami King. I really, really, really was hoping this game was a return to form uh, from the halcyon days of Nintendo 64 and GameCube. Um, I didn't get that. Uh, this game is very good. It is beautiful, and it is super funny. It's a really well-written game. Uh, tacked onto it is a battle system that I was not a fan of. Uh, I know other folks on staff... Uh, thought the uh, battle system was unique, and, and it, in some ways it is, but I do think it is quite tedious, and that's why this game did not crack my top 10, but folks should check it out anyway because it's just a super funny game. Uh, also, a game I did not play to completion. I didn't play it very much at all, actually, but I did play enough to have uh, my nostalgia centers of the brain light up like Christmas morning. Uh, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2. Lots of really great uh, next-gen choices made here. Uh, all the original skaters that are still in the game were uh, <laughs> were aged to match their current ages, which I think is really cool. They added a lot of skaters. They added a non-binary skater, which is really amazing. It's a great game, and playing that warehouse level for the first time in 20 years uh, was just in an incredible experience to have again. So... Uh, I'm going to play this game a lot more in 2021, uh, but yeah. Uh, so let's get into the top 10 John Warren's top 10 games of 2020. Uh, number 10, uh, Blaseball. And for me, the best Blaseball was the very beginning of Blaseball. Uh, and I know that this game is still gaining popularity, it seems like. And, but the first three or so weeks of, of this were really perfect for me. I'm a big sports fan. Um, I, I think we should be able to uh, enjoy sports responsibly. I don't think sports are being responsibly held now, nor were they being responsibly held in the summer. Um, but baseball was kind of at a perfect time when I was missing sports a lot understood why they were gone but super super excited to see something like baseball emerge which is a passive browser-based always on experience i loved how it kind of brought the fanbyte crew together as a team we uh we really picked our 
favorite teams. We talked about our favorite players. Uh, it was really great. It was really uh, amazing to experience that together. Um, part of the really cool um, rollout for baseball was just how the devs were able to incorporate uh, fan choice and voting and uh, kind of a, um, a crowdsourced way to develop aspects of the game. And I think this is really cool. The, the fandom that exists and has taken it and carried it past this point have turned it into something resembling more like Homestuck with a really complex meta narrative and a lot of depth in, in kind of the corners of this game. And I think that's amazing, but it's not for me. Uh, I, I kind of lost track of this game a while ago, but I, I'm super happy to the folks that still love this game. And, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully the folks that, you know, uh, uh, really fell in love with baseball and they say things like, Oh, like, you know, it's not like real sports. And yeah, I, I don't know. I hope you really give sports a, a shot. Uh, try basketball. Basketball is great. NBA is back. WNBA is coming back soon. So, uh, those are, those are two good ones, but that's my number 10. Uh, number nine, speaking of basketball is NBA 2K21. This is almost unfair and I won't spend a lot of time here. But I sim this game, meaning I pick a team, my Dallas Mavericks. I I basically manage the off the court and some of the personnel things that are happening with this team. And I basically simulate the rest. I actually don't play the games. Uh, I do play the game apart from that sometimes, and it feels very good. The next-gen stuff that they added um, uh, back in November feels really good. Uh, they they don't have canned animations for footsteps, so there's not a lot of gliding anymore. Players behave uh, more like they, they do in their real-life uh, counterparts uh, more accurately than ever before, which is really cool. So when you see a player like James Harden or Luka Doncic, when they're trying to create space to shoot a, a long three-pointer from distance, they do it in a really realistic way. Um, this game looks and plays amazingly on next-gen. Try to avoid the microtransactions. That's really kind of the, the worst part of this game, especially since uh, the, this game, the next-gen edition of it costs 70 bucks. So avoid that stuff. Uh, I typically do avoid that stuff, which is why this cracked my top 10. Uh, number eight is Astro's Playroom, uh, it, which is a glorified tech demo for the DualSense controller on PlayStation 5. Uh, but it is also the best platformer of 2020, which is shocking to me. Um, the the devs over at uh, over at Sony have created a great little mascot, has a limited move set, but is so such a joy to control. And you know, Astro's Playroom basically takes you through the guts of a PlayStation 5 in this kind of whimsical way. Um, I didn't even know I was nostalgic for a lot of Sony PlayStation lore. But this game kind of is is an expert uh, example of theme park design. So it takes you through a lot of the history of Sony PlayStation in a, a guided tour almost uh, disguised as a platformer. And it's really effective. And this game sets the bar really high for what the DualSense controller can do. And uh, yeah, it's my number eight game of the year. You should definitely check it out. It, you know, just because it's a pack-in and it's a, uh, a tech demo, essentially, don't sleep on it. You should play it. Uh, it's on your PlayStation 5 right now. 
Number seven is Paradise Killer. I, I think this would have been probably higher on my list had I completed it, spent more time with it. Uh, kind of sold to me as a visual novel, but it's a lot more than that. You can, your first, your first person perspective, you're uh, on foot exploring this uh, very interesting lived in world, uh, but it's totally foreign. Um, you know, so try not to get too swept up in trying to make sense of this kind of bizarre world right at the beginning. It will come into view, but I love all the characters. The music is incredible. And just being able to rifle through the drawers of like someone's apartment and trying to get a sense of who they are. Uh, it's one of my kind of favorite things in games, which is exploring space. And um, it, there's they're not a game uh, in 2020 that does that better or in a more sexy and sleek way than Paradise Killers. You should definitely check that out. Number six is Animal Crossing New Horizons. Um, I have to admit I fell off this game pretty hard at some point in the summer, but those first few months of it being out, it was right at the beginning of the pandemic. It, it's the way to get close to folks um, you know, when we couldn't actually see folks face-to-face. -face. So this was one of those really kind of emotional centers of uh, my brain for a few months where I was able to visit other people's islands I really feel like I was getting to uh, see folks that I wasn't able to see at work or in my personal life. And, it, you know, it's also one of the best Animal Crossing games. Uh, I don't know if it's the best. I still have a real fondness for New Leaf. But New Horizons is really, really good. And if you need kind of a comfy, cozy game, uh, that's that's a good one. Number five is Fuser, a game that uh, I absolutely adore. And it, I, I fell in love with it within five minutes. Uh, I played it at PAX East in their kind of incredibly designed set that they built for the demo station. Uh, I made a total unprofessional mess of myself. I put on headphones and uh, the PR handler that was walking me through it just watched me start fist pumping and bobbing my head. This game is great. And being able to drop these uh, stems from these different songs uh, perfectly in sync and create something kind of new and interesting. These mashups feel so good. Nikki uh, Grayson and I, uh, Nikki Grayson, of course, social editor plus for, for fanbyte.com. Uh, he is an expert in this game and he plays this game every Friday uh, over at twitch.tv slash fanbyte. Uh, and he's an expert, does amazing things with it. I've almost enjoyed watching him and other folks who are really good at this. Uh, more than I have playing it. And that's because I actually don't know if Fuser is a great video game. I don't know if it really takes you through uh, the the mechanics of this game in a way that are, that are as satisfying as just playing the free mode. Uh, like the freestyle mode is really where it's at. And I think like if you focus on that, if you really invest in the new songs that uh, pop up in this game every once in a while, this is a really amazing experience. And you just kind of have to see it for yourself. Uh, number four is Streets of Rage 4. Uh, listen, the original trilogy for Streets of Rage is just one of my favorite series, and it's the coolest. I mean, the beat-em-up action is amazing. Uh, Yuzo Shiro's music is just thumping, and it's perfect. Uh, and it's it's just a cool game. They even tell you that the cops won't help you. So there's just an attitude with Streets of Rage that isn't present in other beat-em-ups. And Streets of Rage 4, when it was announced, I was super skeptical because, you know, the original teams aren't necessarily involved. I didn't know what they would do. The art style is a little more cartoony. But the teams, the teams that worked on this did an incredible job. The gameplay is 
so addictive. They've added kind of air juggling in these confined space uh, frantic battles with a lot of the uh, same character design and flair that was uh, in the original. It, the game is not effortlessly as cool as as the original trilogy. I have to admit, you know, there's a lot more kind of winking and nodding at kind of Gen Z and um, and stuff like that, which you know I think actually kind of takes away from that cool factor. But it's pretty easy to look past that stuff when the game is this fun to play. Uh, Yusuke Kashiro did contribute some to the soundtrack. The rest of the soundtrack is not his work, and it's okay. It's good. Um, it's just not. It doesn't go, go to the heights of uh, Yusuke Kashiro's original soundtracks, but it is very good. So you should definitely check that out. It's one of my favorite games of the year, and uh, I, I'm not sure I felt happier playing a game than uh, Streets of Rage 4, so definitely go check that out. Number three is Risk of Rain 2. It's one of two roguelikes I super, super, super got into this year. Uh, I'll talk about the other one in a moment, but uh, this game, you know, it, it's a, it's a low-poly third-person action game. You're trying to get through these stages. It doesn't really explain a lot. You're picking up power-ups. They're stacking. Whether you're solo or with friends... I had a ton of fun playing this, and it was it was the game that I kept saying to myself, "Okay, I think I have time for one more run." Uh, and it, it it is a blast to play. Music is really good. Um, I don't know. I love this game. It's a game I still go back to. It's a game I will continue to go back to because they keep adding stuff to it. So. Um, I think you should definitely check it out. It, even like, especially even if you didn't like the original Risk of Rain, which was a uh, a 2D side-scrolling uh, roguelike kind of in the same vein, but it did things differently. This is totally different. I think Risk of Rain 2 is a big, big step forward. Number two is the Final Fantasy VII remake. I absolutely close to taking my top spot, um, and really. Square Enix didn't have to risk anything to make this game. They could have just done a by-the-book, moment-to-moment, shot-for-shot remake, just make everything look better, make everything play a little bit better, um, slap a fresh coat of paint on some stuff, and and they would have been fine. And the game probably would have cracked my top ten anyway. But they did something that I didn't expect, which was they they took the original formula and they they switch some stuff around and without spoiling a whole lot, they take the game in, in a couple of directions that make it something else. It's not necessarily a remake. It's almost in a reimagining of the original Canon and has the bizarre distinction of being a game that the second I finished it, not only did I want to replay this game, but I wanted to go back and play the original final fantasy seven because like I said, it's not exactly the same. And it kind of made me want to go back and fill in some blanks that I wasn't remembering from the original. Um, one of the, the the real triumphs of Final Fantasy VII Remake is the the retelling of Aerith's story. Now, Aerith is of course the central character in the original in the original uh, game, but you know she she's important, but maybe not super fleshed out as a character. And Final Fantasy VII Remake really took. Uh, Aerith as a character and gave her a lot of depth made her play off of cloud the protagonist who's detached and sullen and and confused about the world really made her a great foil for him and made her a super delightful character to spend 35 hours with so 
I I love this game a lot. The uh, the soundtrack, the recompositions of Nobuo Uematsu's original work, and some of the new tracks are just incredible. Um, this was one of my favorite games of the year. I thought about it after the fact more than anything I played, and uh, I'm playing through it again right now. It's it's just that good. Number one is and it shouldn't shock that many people. It's on a ton of folks. Uh, top 10 list and it's at the top of most of them it is super giants hades i've loved every super giant game bastion transistor even pyre um but when they made a roguelike i basically dismissed it and even though steven straw managing editor uh was a big fan of this game uh, as soon as it went into early access uh i just kind of rejected it as okay it's a roguelike i'm not gonna love it and I was super wrong because what this game does is it adds a real sense of progression and a real sense in, in a, a real sense of why it is a roguelike. The, the mechanic of death is not super simple. It is a reason why you want to go through this game over and over and over again without spoiling too much. The, the story of Zagreus is incredible and our hero is complex uh, sly and funny but also sad and and uh, dejected by the way things are in in hell um, and so his journey and his interactions with all the characters that you meet which are yes as you've heard they're all hot and interesting and that's all true um, but it's all really beautiful and disarming and uh, lovely and I think this game is the best game of the year it was probably the best game of last year too but I was just kind of the the, the silly idiot that didn't pay attention Hades is the best game of the year for me and I think you should definitely play it especially if you don't like roguelikes um, and that's my top 10 of the year uh, next week I'm going to go into the top uh, other things that are not games uh, of the year for me um, so yeah that's that's kind of the plan but yeah i any of those games that i just mentioned are amazing you should definitely check them out and uh yeah go check out fanbyte.com for everyone else's list uh, everyone else put a lot of thought into their list as well and uh hades definitely shows up on a few of them that's all for the show this week thank you so much again to imran khan for dropping by that was a great conversation if you do love the show please tell folks about it it's going to be basically the same as this going forward uh your likes and subscribes and word of mouth means a lot if you leave reviews uh on itunes or uh if you subscribe on spotify that really really helps so please go do that. Uh, also, all of our podcasts, uh, fanbyte.com slash podcasts. We have amazing stuff. This is a really big focus for us moving forward. Uh, any sort of feedback, please drop it at podcasts at fanbyte.com. Um, next week is going to be an interesting one. I don't have a great plan for it yet, uh, but it'll be kind of a wrap-up show for the year. You'll get to hear some of my best ofs that aren't games. There will be an interview. I don't know who it's going to be yet, but I, I think it's going to be great. Um, I hope everyone has a safe holiday. Um, stay safe. Uh, stay warm. Stay happy. And uh, y'all take it easy. Thank you.